I have the great privilege of inviting up Dave Upchurch, the Director of Care and Compassion Ministries here at Grace. Dave is a good friend and, and a good preacher. I look forward to hearing from him this morning. So Dave, come up and bring God's word to us. For those of you who were hoping for more rain, uh, thank me. I washed my windows yesterday. If you didn't want more rain, it was providential. As we come to God's word, let's pray. Our Father, we're so grateful for your wonderful work in our lives, for the ways in which you show us yourself all the time. Please direct us now in your word that we may learn of you and of your ways, that you might have all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Acts chapter 14. As Paul flees from an earlier town, Iconium, he ends up in Lystra. Now, all this is in dry central, what's present-day Turkey. It's a rough part of the world, and it's dry in many ways. This is the word of God. I'll be reading at verse 8 of chapter 14 of Acts. Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking. And Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lycaonian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they call Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. And when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you. And we bring you good news, that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. 
And on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. I have two accounts of healings. The first one is this one right here that I just read. Try try to put yourself there in that city in Turkey, in central Turkey. All our imagination about rocks and brown of Arizona, all those things are what we're talking about. And in this particular city, which was not a major city in Rome by any stretch, Paul and Barnabas flee because they're bringing the gospel all over that part of the world. And they come into the city and Paul sees this crippled man who, as it turns out, was crippled from birth. And they look him in, and Paul looks him in the eye. And surely by the power of the Holy Spirit recognizes in this man this search for God, this faith that would bring him to the Savior. So Paul looks him in the eye and says, stand up and walk. And he does. He leaps up and he walks. Now, Lister was not a big town. Everybody knew this guy. Everyone knew how crippled this man was. So what do they do? It's clearly a work of the supernatural. Clearly, it's a miracle. So they fall back on the legend that they all had heard of Zeus and Hermes coming to earth in their very town and making himself known. That's why there was a temple to Zeus right outside the gate of the city. Zeus, Hermes have come back and they and they proclaim the truth of this healing. It really happened. And it's Zeus and Hermes who did it. That's the first story. Second account. I get dated when I use TV illustrations. I realize that. But that's okay. David Letterman, <laughs> who's about to retire, right? David Letterman, late night comic, TV host, Years ago now, he had open-heart surgery. I don't know if you remember that or even care, but he did. He had had open-heart surgery. Big deal in the TV world. He was out for several weeks having this major surgery. And I was curious as to his first nights, like so many millions where they advertise it, curious as to what Letterman's first show back would be like. So very kindly, Letterman invited his, the entire surgical team back to that first show. 
Instead of the usual opening monologue, he had all these, the surgical team there. The nurses, the anesthesiologist, the whole staff, the surgeon who actually did the surgery were all right there. And he went from person to person, thank, introducing them to the, to the audience and thanking them. And then he got to the surgeon. And Letterman, he started to choke up. And he said, I want to thank this man for saving my life. Very kind. How heartfelt. Please keep both of those accounts in mind now as we look at the Word of God here in Acts 14. Because this is the first proclamation that we know of that Paul and Barnabas make directly to a pagan audience in a pagan, a predominantly pagan city. If you recall, earlier on this first missionary voyage, first missionary journey, they had spoken first in the synagogues where people knew the scriptures. And he would begin by, by teaching them from the scripture and going on from there. But this is different. Their zeal for Christ had brought them to this, this backwater town of Lystra. It's a town um, that probably smaller than Lawrence on a minor ro Roman road, but it was a road that was important. It connected many cities, so there was traffic, there was commerce on it. And as I read this passage a week or two ago, I thought about Lawrence. <laughs> okay. I, I thought about our city and what it's like and where we are here in flyover country and what the predominant religious view of our friends and neighbors is. I thought of them when I read about Lystra. I think there is much here for us as we obey the great commandment to evangelize our friends and neighbors, I trust that as we look at our primarily pagan neighbors, we will see the ways in which they are that way. Because as we look at Paul, as we look together at God's word here in Acts 14, I think we'll see more clearly ourselves, and our neighbors, and how we, as God's people in this place, can be more faithful to His call upon each of our lives. In the city that Paul just fled, Iconium, to get down to Lystra, he called the gospel something that we also need to hang on to. Look at verse 3 of chapter 14, if you still have your Bible open. So they, that is Paul and Barnabas, so they remain for a long time speaking boldly for the Lord who bore witness to the word of His grace, granting signs and wonders. Bore witness to the word of His grace. Isn't that a wonderful summary of what we have been given and what we have to give? So let's look. Let's look at these Lystrans and the way Paul approached them 
as he sought them for the Lord. The first thing, by the way, this is a three-pointer for you, you all who are taking notes. First point. Paul proclaimed the truth to these listeners. He, he didn't walk around it. He talked about it. They come and they, and they say to him, Ah, Zeus, Zeus and Hermes. Paul is obviously Hermes. He's the messenger. That, look, oh, wow, look at this wonderful miracle they've wrought. And what's, what are Paul and Barnabas' response to that? Wait a minute. They tear their clothing. They, they rip their clothes. They cry out to these people, No, no, no. They, this ripping, this tearing of clothing is this grief for the, for the totally vain view that these ha- people have of the living God. They, they grieve over these people. They beg them, what, verse 15, why are you doing this? Turn from these vain things, they tell them, to the living God. In fact, there's a word there that we need to hang on to. You should turn from these vain things to the living God. He begs them, abandon these vanities, abandon these empty idols that you're following. This is false, these gods that you seek to please with your sacrifices and your idols and your false worship. You see, Paul understood that the good news of God's grace in Christ is bad news for whatever gods, idols, or idols that humans give their lives to. Notice what Paul did not say to them. He did not say, who am I to judge? He did not say, I'm sure that religion makes you happy and fulfilled. Sure, sacrifice to me if it makes you satisfied. He did not say, I'm happy for you and all that gives you. No, he said, the good news of Jesus Christ in part is this prescription. This is what you should abandon. This is the vanity that you must stand away from, these false gods. Because only as you abandon them will you truly embrace Christ who came, the Lord who came, sent by the living God who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that therein is. These gods are vanity. They will only lead you to hell. Well, what characterizes unbelief in our town, in Lawrence? It's sort of an easy answer in in a lot of ways, isn't it? If we know anybody who's outside the faith, we know the kinds of things that they pursue, that they seek. 
What should non-Christians in our day abandon? And look at that word should again. Hang on to that. What should they abandon? Begin with Dave Letterman. And I don't pretend to know his heart. All, I go, all I'm going by this morning is what he said on that particular night many years ago. So I come in and I sit down on the couch with Dave, right? Dave, that surgeon, as skilled and compassionate as he is, that surgeon did not save your life. The God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that therein is, He is the one who healed you. So you see, science and human pride, which so dominate our our lives, science and human pride believe that that wonderful surgeon saved him. This temptation to attribute to science that which is God's is one of our versions of pagan idolatry. Our neighbor's misunderstanding of the God to whom worship is due is contained in that worship of science and the superiority of human reason to solve problems, the superiority of human reason to give us everything. A second example of this kind of vain pursuit. I was watching another television show recently, and one of the characters said, God let me down. God let me down. I think Paul would have torn his clothes in his grief for her. He would have torn his clothes and begged and cried out to her, Please consider what you just said. Consider what that means. Consider who it is you're really worshiping and serving. Please abandon the vanity of thinking that you are in any position to judge the God of heaven and earth. Please stop and think. Such a God as you just described is based on your false sense of entitlement. That somehow this God of your own imagining owes you good things. Who are you to judge the living God? Abandon, you should abandon this pagan idol of your own making and serve the one true God who is outside your own head, your own imagination. This God who the Scripture reveals is a jealous God who commands your obedience. You and I don't judge God. The should is all directed at us. We should bow down. 
The good news, in other words, is in that should. The good news of the gospel, the good news of the word of God's grace is in that should. Because as an individual soul abandons the vain things which we tend to worship, we hear the command of the Lord Jesus. Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Then Paul tells them next what this living God has done. Second point. Paul proclaimed the truth about God to them. The truth about God. Because, Paul said, this is the God who made heaven and earth, all good comes from him. So turn from Zeus to the one who truly is the source of all good. Look at verse 17. Yet he, yet God, did not leave himself without witness. For he did good. He's he's talking to this crowd. For he did good. By giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. It is only this God that can answer the needs of this pagan audience. Only He as verse 17 says, truly satisfies. A dry land depends on someone outside itself for rain and for crops. And those Listerns knew that. The human heart longs to worship the God who made that very heart and mind and is outside of both of them. But the sinful longings of our pride are to control all there is in our lives. Zeus and Hermes could be controlled. Zeus and Hermes could be picked up and carried to the the pagan temple. If we just bring the right sacrifices to Zeus and Hermes, they'll take care of us. Yet even sin-distorted longing points to the existence and to the need for the God who made us and all that there is. That longing shows us. That's part of the witness that Paul refers to here. This longing shows us there's something outside of us, and as we look around, we see it. So the good news... All that we realize, even in our sinful hearts, becomes plain in the word of his grace. Paul is pointing to the witness of the world around us. He's reflecting the psalm, Psalm 19 in particular. The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament, all that's spread out, proclaims his handiwork. Here's your homework assignment. 
If you don't yet have one, tomorrow go buy a hummingbird feeder. (laughs) If you've already got one, you know what I'm talking about. Put that hummingbird feeder right next to the window and keep it full of sugar water and watch. That hummingbird will come and you're going to go, there's no way. No, it, it can't do that. It, it can't hover there and eat that food that way. It just is, it's impossible. That cannot happen. And it cannot possibly be that beautiful. There is the satisfaction of our heart in the witness that God gives us of his grace to us, of his goodness in all things. Put it near a window where you do your Bible study and prayer. So when you fear, when you doubt, when you worry, you will see that hummingbird. And even in the winter, you'll see the feeder. Leave it out all winter. Drain it first. Leave it out all winter to remind you of the glory of God in the face of his creation. And then with Paul, walk the next step to the word of his grace. Paul proclaims to them the God to whom these witnesses, like that hummingbird, testify. That's where he's taking them. And he, of course, explains a lot more than's written here, as we'll see evidence of later on. He talks about Jesus and the cross and the sacrifice and all the, and their need to embrace him. But he says, look, <laughs> Zeus and Hermes didn't do this. Your own vain imaginings didn't do this. He comes back through Lystra later on. And as he says in verse 21, when they, as Luke tells us, when they had preached the gospel to the city of Derby and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the saints there. Encouraging them to continue in the faith. They embraced it. That's the good that God does and did. That's who he is that Paul proclaimed to them. Now, our neighbors and our friends who are outside the faith have the same longings, the same need for satisfied hearts that the Lystrans had. Although it looks different at its core, At the heart of it all, they practice really the same kind of idolatry where they're ignoring this witness that God has given. We see again these sin-infected longing hearts in the appeal of, of some television shows. A longing for right relationships. Go back, go back with me. A place where everyone knows your name. That was a popular show, I think, in the 80s. 
come forward. Another show called Friends. Come forward even now to situation comedies in which what is featured is loving families, even though they make fun of each other for half an hour. The resolution at the end is, yeah, that family. Even cop shows do that. Have you ever thought about that? Even cop shows that my partner's got my back. The people I work with, we care about each other. We stand up for each other against the bad guys. If, you do soci- if you've read some sociological surveys of poor folks, material, materially poor people, you will find that the, one of the main ways they describe their poverty is the poverty of isolation from their fellow human beings that, that material poverty does to them. They long, they long for right relationships. And as the Scripture teaches, they long for a right relationship with the living God, that He might transform their lives, that He might redeem them, He might bring them back to Himself. Because that's the way God made us. Made us for Him. Made us to rightly love one another and to be in a right relationship by the power of His Spirit. And so Paul's good news is to those folks. God restores us to Himself, which is at the root of that longing heart. By faith, He makes us right with the One who made everything and helps us to destroy the sin that indwells us, that those relationships might come to approach the way they ought to be, the way God created them to be. Satisfying our hearts, verse 17, satisfying our hearts, Paul would say, not just with rain and food, but with a right relationship with the living God. Now, Paul saw some results of this proclamation. This is point number three. He saw some results. The first thing he saw was that the lost were found. He saw people who were restored by the blood of the cross to a right relationship by faith in the living God. If you look back at the lame man being healed, if you have the ESV, it's verse 9, the end of verse 9. If you have the ESV, you'll see a footnote, the number 2 in mine. And it says, or be saved. That's because the word quite properly translated in verse 8, or verse 9 rather, stand and be made well, is exactly the same word as if Paul had said, stand and be saved. Luke, who wrote this by the power of the Holy Spirit, is giving us a play on words to make sure we catch it, that this is what God does. For people. God doing the work through His Son by the power of His Spirit to save His own. Look at verse 21. 
returning. They returned to Lystra and Tyconium and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples. There were disciples in each of those towns. In, in Antioch and Iconium and Lystra, they got thrown out of town, hauled out of town on a rail, fled for their lives. But there were disciples there because the God of glory was at work in the souls of men and women in those towns. And God powerfully used the proclamation of the word of His grace in the lives of those people. They fled to the living God who made heaven and earth. They humbled themselves as sinners desperately needing forgiveness because of the preaching of the gospel. Look at Acts 16. Acts 16, verse 1. Paul came also to Derby. Now, this is the second time around. No, actually the third time around. Paul came also to Derby and to Lystra. A disciple was there. To what town? Lystra, where Paul was stoned, almost died. A disciple was there named Timothy. There wasn't a, a synagogue in Lystra, apparently, but there was this Jewish woman that we find about out about in Second Timothy. Isn't that great? <laughs> Timothy got saved. And all the work that Timothy did as an elder in the church later on that we see in First and Second Timothy, there's the power of God. The power of God in the gospel by the power of the Holy Spirit. I wonder if Timothy was even in that crowd on that day when that man was healed. That's fun to think about. This God who saved Timothy, this God who created disciples in Antioch and Lystra and Derby and Iconium is the same God who saves in Lawrence, Kansas right now. Think about your own story of the grace of God in your life. It may not have been in Lawrence. We're so blasted mobile these days. It may have been in Derby. But God saved. God worked mightily. He still works. We hang on to that. We know that's true. Even as we look at that hummingbird, we recognize that that's just the first step. It takes us right to the cross as we can follow that up. The power of the living God in your own life. Now, a bunch of us earlier this summer were talking about, this was in May, and we were talking about the upcoming vacation Bible school that we do here every year. And folks got to talking about, oh, yeah, do you remember when that person 15 years ago came to VBS? That person's mom brought her kids to VBS, and she's now in women's Bible study, and on and on and on and on. God is still working. God still saves. It's the power of God. It's the old, old story of Jesus and his love. Some of you recognize that line. And it's true. 
That's what God is still doing. Paul saw something else, though, too. He saw the first result that he saw was folks being made into disciples, folks embracing the living God who came in his son. Paul did not seek martyrdom. Paul didn't say, wow, I'll get a bunch of stars in my crown if I just get killed. No. Paul's heart was for the lost. Paul's zeal was for proclaiming the wonderful good news of Christ. And it almost got him killed. You, you ca- did you catch that description at the end of that section? I mean, they were thought he was dead. That's why they left him outside the city. He was a goner. He, not happening. But God saved his life as well as his soul and his heart and all that he was. And what did Paul do at that point? He went on doing it. He goes back into Lystra. We don't know exactly what he did because Luke doesn't tell us. And then he left Lystra and went on down the road to Derby, And he continued to prescribe abandonment of idolatry to embrace the living God in Christ Jesus. Oh, the fickleness of that Lystrian crowd. One minute, one, at one point, they're, they're about to make him, they're saying he's Zeus or Hermes. And the next, they're throwing rocks at him to try to kill him. The crowd in Jerusalem on Palm Sunday was the same way. Our Savior suffered the same way. That's what the gospel does. That's what this good news does. Our Savior divides people. See, it's either Zeus or Jesus. It's either the Judaism of the rabbis or Jesus. And for us, in our vanities, either science is supreme or Jesus is. Either human reason is supreme or the living God is. Either the autonomy of the inside of my noggin or a right relationship with God through the blood-cleansed robe that my Savior gives me freely. Either dreams of love doomed to follow me into the grave or hope to truly love the brothers and sisters through all eternity. Either the falsehood of the idols we make in hopes of satisfying ourselves or worshiping the God who made the earth, the sea, and all that in them is. Verse 22. The crowd joined in attacking them. This isn't even in Lystra. This is down the road. The crowd joined them in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering to jailer to keep them safely. That was at Philippi. 
But that's right. That was, that was good. Okay. Back at verse 22. I know some of you were confused at that point. Sorry. They went back to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying, and here's the point, and saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom. Jesus divides. The gospel divides. We are to expect that. We are to know it. That we might be equipped to proclaim his truth and to live his truth throughout our lives. Just as with Paul, these divisions, among others I could mention, Christ causes in our lives. As we abandon our vanities and believe his claims, as we trust in his once-for-all sacrifice, as we truly worship this God who made heaven and earth, as we follow as his disciples, these tribulations are what happened to us as well. Paul's proclamation of the good news to the pagans in Lystra has, I trust you can see, so much for us. The vanity of unbelieving worship. The need for the should, for the prescription to come out of our mouths at times. The glory of the soul-satisfying word of His grace. The divisions that we can expect. The power of the word of His grace to save His people. Knowing all this, as we rest in our love for Christ, May he give us, by his grace, a confidence in this powerful gospel for our own lives and a zeal for the lost souls in Lawrence, Kansas. Let's pray. Our God, we do thank you for showing us these wonderful truths of who you are and who your Son is and the working of your Spirit in our lives. Please help us. Please strengthen and give us hearts that beg people, that cry out to people to abandon their vanities and embrace you, the living God, who sent your only begotten Son that we might have life for all eternity. And we ask these things in Jesus' name, our glorious Savior. Amen.